Welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Bree, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 43, Pope Zazimus. Zazumus and not Zazumen. Yes, you're right. It is not Zazumen that we have been using for a source, or the Zazimus that we have been using for a source, because there's a Zazumen and there's a Zazimus, but this is a Eusebius situation 2.0, Zazimus, but not that Zazimus. Oh no! Yeah, so this is the Pope guy, not any of the other Zazimuses or Zazimens that we've been talking about. So let's dig into this man, because this is a story for you. So, first off, Zazimus was born in Mezzarocca, which is the eastern coast of the Italian peninsula. So if you're looking at a map, if you're looking at the boot of Italy, it's kind of the arch between the toe and the heel, so right in there. And the Liber Pontificalis tells us that his family was of a Greek heritage and that his father's name was Abremius. Although we probably don't think much of that name, some historians, like Adolf Van Harnick, has read into this name a little bit as a Latinized Abraham and made an argument that maybe his family wasn't actually of Greek origin, but rather maybe Jewish heritage. So other historians are not really convinced by this theory, including Duchenne in his Histoire Enchant de l'Anglaise, which we've been using quite extensively for our research so far. And I'm sorry for the French. I'm not Quebecois Canadian. Not that Canadian. I'm not that type of Canadian yet. So beyond the speculation and rejection of this idea, we really know nothing else about him before he assumed the papacy. So you can insert the entered church, made a distinction, elected sort of narrative here. But we do know that he was elected on March 18th of 417, and things are peaceful for about four days <laughs> before things start getting flexy. That's it? Four days? Mm-hmm, yeah, four days. But before we get into all of that, Let's just sweep those easy and likely untrue things that we get from the Liber Pontificalis first, so that we can just say that they're done, so we can deal with the rest. So, according to the Liber Pontificalis, Pope Zosimus is responsible for a decree that deacons should wear the maniple, which is a vestment that is worn and draped over the left arm. It hasn't been used much in religious observance since the 1960s, since it's no longer required. So it's probably not as popular in common images of clerics. But in short, the vestment is thought to have originated from the need of clerics to wipe their faces or their hands. So it's basically a clerical handkerchief that then became part of the liturgical vestments in sort of a representation to the rope by which Christ was led into the Passion and therefore became an emblem of the tears of penance and the burden of sin and the fatigue of the priestly office type thing. So he is the one that made popes responsible to wear that up until the 1960s. He's also credited with decrees that administrated the dedication of Easter candles in country parishes that basically, quote, say, in all parishes, permission should be granted to bless the wax. It's uh, not particularly exciting, but it's there. And then he's also responsible for a decree forbidding clerics to visit taverns. And this one says, quote, in the Liber Pontificalis, 
He gave order that no member should drink in public except in a chamber belonging to the faithful, preferably the clergy. Only drink alone in your room. Pretty much exactly that. Those are the ones that are, you know, the apostolic succession generally credited to later popes type thing. So let's get back to what started happening right away in his papacy after four days of peace. When Zosimus was elected to the role of pope, a festival was held. And to be clear, this likely isn't the first festival for a pope that we've seen or that has happened before in this time period, but... The only one that's that's important. It's It's the only one that we have some sort of accounting of. So this was probably happening on a fairly regular basis for popes when they got elected. But because of what happens, this is the first one we actually know about for sure. And one of the attendants who came to this festival was the Bishop of Arles, a man called Patroclus. And Patroclus had become the Bishop of Arles after the deposition of the previous bishop called Heros. Heros had been deposed from his position by Emperor Constantius III, mainly because he'd been installed to the position by Constantine III, who was a usurping military general who styled himself emperor, but got defeated fairly quickly in 411. And so, because Patroclus at the time was the favorite of the local Roman general of the area, also called Constantine, same name, not same guy, Constantine, not that Constantine. Too many Constans. So many Constans. So, this Constantine, who's the general, put his own man into the job now that there was a depost bishop. So now he's the bishop of Arles, and he attends the Pope's election festival. And Pope Zosimus took to Patroclus in a big way. Like, these men really hit it off with one another. Good friends? Such good friends. Such, like, bezzy mates type friendships. So, so just about 20 years before this, Arles had become the top civil diocese in all of Gaul, called the Prefectus Praetorio Galliarum where the head official of all Gaul would keep their residence. So on the civil side, Arles has just become the most important place in all of Gaul and became the new capital, replacing the old capital of the city of Trier. So Arles has been increasing in secular importance, and Patroclus, who now has this wonderful relationship with both the general and the pope, sees a perfect opportunity to increase his own influence and power, right? If Arles is going to be the new hotspot in Gaul, wouldn't it make sense that it should also become the chief diocese for the church as well? No. Shouldn't it be he that becomes the Archbishop of Gaul with supremacy over the rest of the Gallic bishops? Nope. Well, surely his new buddy old pal, the Pope, the prime authority over the whole church, could make this happen for him. With a wave of his hand, really. Like, this could be very simple. And sure enough, that's exactly what he convinces the Pope to do. So, on March 22nd, literally five days after he was made Pope, Zosimus issues a letter that makes Patroclus of Arles the Metropolitan Archbishop of Gaul, which places him above all the other bishops throughout the entire province. This is my best friend, Patroclus. Yeah, this is my best friend, Patroclus. He is now holding the chief office in the land. He has also made Patroclus the papal vicar for Gaul, just like we saw last week with Innocent, who made the Archbishop of Thessalonica the vicar for Illyria, which basically means that he's the permanent agent slash representative of the Pope in the region. 
not only is he the highest high in the land, now he has a direct connection to the Pope at all times. And by the way, since we've not really addressed much about Gaul in its geographical significance before, other than it was more or less the ancient province of what is now France, it is an absolutely massive territory at this time. It includes parts of Italy and parts of Switzerland, as well as Luxembourg and Belgium by today's standards. So to be the head of all of this territory for the church is a pretty huge position. But that's not all. As the papal vicar, this meant that no member of the Gallic clergy of any ecclesiastical level would be allowed to travel to Rome to speak to the Pope or conduct any other religious business unless he carried a letter of identity from Patroclus himself. Wait, okay, question. Yes. He did this five days after he became Pope. How long was the, like, the party was directly after he became Pope? Mm -hmm. It was part of his consecration ceremony, so it was like the day of. He's only been best friends with this man for, like, four days tops. Yep. Ooh, that's some Vegas shotgun wedding best friendship here. Oh, oh, it definitely, definitely is. So you can imagine how, with this massive Vegas-style best friendship, how well this sat with all the other Gallic bishops to suddenly have this, like, parvenu upstart bishop placed above them with such a extensive level of control and influence. Like, understandably, they saw this as a huge infringement of their privileges and their rights and their authority, and many of them, including the bishops of Vienne and Narbonne and Marseille, write directly to the Pope to object to this outright swing of power and ask him to reconsider his decision. You know, maybe you're still partying a little too hard. What happens in Vegas should stay in Vegas and not affect the rest of Gaul. But Zosimus didn't take kindly to these letters of objection, and he fired back to the bishops that they had two choices. They could accept the Metropolitan Bishop of Arles, or they could be excommunicated. Wow, choices. Mm, it's starting to look a lot like Pope Victor, you know, threatening to excommunicate swathes of bishops from your church never ends up well. No, that's how you get anti-popes. That's how you get anti-popes. And it gets worse. So to convince Zosimus to elevate him in this way, Patroclus had allegedly cited the Council of Nicaea, who had apparently made a decision that ruled in favor of the rights of a metropolitan bishopric to Arles. So there is a historical precedent to favor Arles back from one of the most important ecumenical council of the history of the church. Did he just lie? Is he lying to his best friend? Yeah, there was no such rule or decision like this ever made at Nicaea, and the story that Patroclus told was entirely apocryphal, so there is no historical precedent. There is no historical precedent there. No, he's doing so bad picking friends for himself. <laughs> yeah, this is not a good look. Someone help him. <laughs> but for the duration of his papacy, this situation with the bishopric of Arles doesn't actually come to a solution and remains a point of conflict from here on in for a little while. So the bishops aren't willing to accept Patroclus as having supreme authority over them, and the Pope is absolutely not willing to bend, and he has come right out of the gate with this harsh ultimatum. So there's no room to negotiate here, and this won't actually be settled until Pope 47. Oh, wow. Okay, that's four popes from now. Yeah, decades. 
This is a problem he started and definitely didn't finish. Wow, I did just... The bad, bad romance here is ruining Pope's decades down the line. Scandal points, I guess. Definitely, definitely. But let's talk about the Pelagians. Oh yeah, we had cliffhangers. We did. So last week, we had a brief look at the teachings of Pelagius, the unassuming, optimistic British monk who found himself entirely embroiled in a controversy over some of his ideas? Perhaps plagiarized ideas. Plagiarized (laughs) ideas, yes. And these ideas had led to a condemnation first by the African Episcopate, and now an excommunication by Pope Innocent in January of 417. And like we said last week, poor Pelagius had been rocked by this news, and we left him last week as he had written a personal confession of his faith directly to the Pope. But Innocent had died before the letter reached him, so it would be received by Zosimus instead. How does Zosimus feel about this letter? Like, can they be best friends too, or no? Um, a little of column A, a little of column B. (laughs) (laughs) So, before Zosimus received Pelagius' letter, a follower of Pelagius called Celestius arrived in Rome, intending to directly appeal to the Pope about the Pelagian condemnation. He had been expelled from his home in Constantinople, and had been condemned by the bishops at Carthage at 411, so he'd come all the way directly to the Pope to argue that Pelagianism was not heretical. And Celestius actually moves Zosimus. By all accounts, Celestius is an outstanding theologian who wrote and spoke extremely well, and so he convinced the Pope to hear out the Pelagians. So in the summer of 417, Zosimus held a synod at the Basilica of St. Clement, where Celestius was able to appear before the Roman clergy and appeal on behalf of the Pelagians. During this meeting, he was able to respond to the prepositions that had been laid out by the African bishops, and Celestius smoothly responds to all of the prepositions that outlined the Pelagian teachings. I'm glad Pelagius sent the person with the high charisma. Yes. I mean, he didn't send him directly. It's possible that they may not have even known each other in theory. So this is just somebody who thought that Pelagius had really good ideas and he had been ascribing to those ideas and had suffered personally. So he does this in a really, really good way because he doesn't reject what the council is saying and he doesn't distance himself from what the council actually says about Pelagianism. He simply stated that those beliefs that were outlined in what the African bishops were saying weren't actually heretical. They were just maybe misunderstood. And more importantly, Celestius indicated that he absolutely accepted the doctrine that came from Pope Innocent's letters. So those letters that had had actually condemned Pelagianism had defended the actual ideas that are orthodoxy about God's grace. So Celestius is saying, no, no, what, what the doctrine that Innocent put in those letters 100%. We agree with all of those points that the Pope made. But the teachings of Pelagius don't contravene these concepts. And this is very wise of him. He is saying that the Pope, no, the Pope is definitely not wrong. But he just he's just been presented to a version of Pelagianism that's been misrepresented. So, to reinforce this, in front of the council, Celestius also made his own formal confession of faith. 
all of which was considered by the council who heard it to be orthodox. And this is the point where the letter from Pelagius with his confession of faith also arrived, to which he had added some writings about his ideas on free will. This letter was also read before the council, and just like with Celestius, it was determined that the professions of faith written by Pelagius himself were also orthodox. So these ideas that you are putting forward are not actually in contravention of the actual doctrine. So, because of this, Zosimus is won over to their cause. So the council determined that there was no certain evidence that Celestius or Pelagius had maintained doctrinal viewpoints that had been rejected by Innocent, and that the African bishops had been too quick to condemn Pelagianism based on a misrepresentation of its message. So Pope Zosimus wrote to the African bishops by September of 417, defending Celestius and defending Pelagius and reprimanding them for what he now viewed to be a hasty and uninformed condemnation. Well, yeah, we're going to talk about hasty and uninformed things, are we? Funny you should mention that. He also rebukes the initial accusers of Pelagianism, which would have included St. Augustine, who is Pelagius's chief critic. He's calling Augustine too hasty and uninformed. I'm sorry. That man is so informed. Right? So he declared the views he had heard to be orthodox and instructed that any African bishop with anything to bring against Celestius or Pelagius needed to come to do that in Rome right now within two months or the matter was settled. When this letter was received in Africa, it was not taken very well. So the Archbishop of Carthage quickly convened his bishops in a synod to draft a response letter to the Pope. And in this letter, the African bishops remained firm on their initial condemnation, and they even suggested to the Pope that he had been deceived by heretics. Ooh, snap. Zosimus receives their response and backpedals. Oh, no. He informed them that he hadn't actually decided anything, definitely, absolutely for sure, and uh, he hadn't wanted to uh, make a firm decision until he had consulted the African bishops, after all. So... Essentially, the African bishops had called his bluff, and he was now going, oh, no, I, I didn't actually say that, like, was a for sure a thing. I, I wanted to hear your input. So they sent him a new synodal letter in May of 418, firmly condemning Pelagius yet again, hoping to persuade the Pope to deal with Pelagianism as heresy. So they claim that Pelagianism denied nine Orthodox understandings. So this is where it becomes heresy, that it denies the next nine things that I am going to say. One, death came from sin, not man's physical nature. Two, infants must be baptized to be cleansed from original sin. Three, justifying grace covers past sins and helps avoid future sins. Four, the grace of Christ imparts strength and will to act out God's commandments. Five, no good works can come without God's grace. Six, we confess we are sinners because it is true, not from humility. Seven, the saints ask for forgiveness for their own sins. Eight, the saints also confess to be sinners because they are. And nine, children dying without baptism are excluded from both the kingdom of heaven and eternal life. So according to this council, Pelagianism denies that those things are true, and that makes it heresy. 
And at this time, as he receives this letter conveniently, the Pope decides to read Pelagius's commentary on the Book of Romans from the Bible and found that his commentary was shocking. Although, clearly, this is just a means to, like, find a reason to justify his backpedal. So he uses this moment to look like he was getting on the side that everyone else was on. So he decides he's going to summon Celestius to come back to Rome and explain these new developments. Explain yourself, please. I have now been told that you are heresy. What's that about? But at the same time that this was all going down, the emperor Honorius had decided that Pelagianism was a threat to him politically as well as spiritually, so he decided to outlaw Pelagianism. And likely because of this, the emperor outlawing Pelagianism, Celestius decided to get the heck out of Dodge and fled Rome. This is the same dumb emperor who is just dumb, right? Yeah, who let the sack of Rome happen. Yeah, yeah. who was like, you are reasonable demands. I don't like them. Yeah, that's the same guy. So Celestius is like, okay, this is ju I've just been outlawed as a human, and I'm going to get the heck out of Rome. Mm -hmm. Time to leave. So out of that, he doesn't appear before the Pope to answer for the renewed charges of heresy. And this makes him look guilty, unfortunately. As it would. It would. So the condemnation of Pelagianism by the Emperor, and then you have Celestius's departure, was enough for Zosimus to, quote, recognize the true character of Pelagius's teaching, and he issues his first Epistola Tractoria, which officially condemned Pelagianism and all its authors. So he said, no, 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 you guys are fine. It's all orthodox. Don't worry about it. It's all good. Oh, wait, you're going to come against me and say it is actually heresy? I'm going to backpedal. Actually, you guys are all now all heretics, and you need to get out. Poor Pelagius is horrified, and he flees Rome as well, at this point to Jerusalem, where he arrives only to get expelled as a heretic from there as well. Oh, goodness. He finally ends up in Egypt, and we never hear more about what happened to him. Oh, Pelagius. Poor, poor Pelagius. Pelagianism, though, would outlive him, which isn't a terrible surprise, considering he wasn't really involved with the spreading of his teachings in the first place. No, he was just kind of there. But this, this is the end for poor Pelagius. But <laughs> Zosimus isn't quite done making a mess for people yet. No. No, he still has some meddling to do, and he did this again in Africa, where the bishops aren't particularly happy with him anyways. So in this situation, there was a priest called Apiarius of Sicca who had been excommunicated by the Bishop Urbanus of Sicca for crimes. I, I know you said crimes, but I thought you said crying at first. <laughs> and I was like, wow, someone's really strict. But also, so strict. crimes is very broad. It's been shrouded in antiquity what these crimes were, but the phrase numerous crimes comes up, so. Now he's just been crying. Numerous crying. <laughs> They sent him away because he wouldn't stop. They're just really, really annoyed with <laughs> him. Just, he's always just babbling like a baby. I mean, so they kick him out. And Apiarius decides that he is going to bypass the very clearly outlined proper course of appeal through his local bishopric for his deposition. You know, these are the people I'm supposed to talk to, but maybe they all watch me cry. So I'm going to skip ahead. <laughs> and... <laughs> 
so, oh, I love that this is my next line here. And so he goes directly to the Pope to tell his tale of woe. (laughs) (laughs) I've ruined it. I've ruined the story. (laughs) (laughs) So he gets up there. He tells the Pope what's going on. He cries a little bit, but he's managed to hold most of it together. And Zosimus immediately accepted his appeal and sent his own personal legates to Africa to investigate, rather than referring Apiarius back to the African appeal process, which he should have done to, you know, reinforce the overall administrative hierarchy and organization of the church as a whole. That would have made sense. But he didn't see it that way. He felt that any cleric, on any level, had the right to appeal to the Roman see because the Roman see is the apostolic see, and therefore they have the primacy to overrule any decision. Yes, this is where we are seeing the church go with this idea of papal primacy. And it's relatively true at this time period, but he's using this primacy in exactly the wrong way. Mm-hmm. So instead, when he sent his emissaries, he also threatened the Bishop Urbanus with excommunication if he refused to come to some sort of accord with Apiarius. You get excommunicated and you get excommunicated. Yep. Take this man back, this crying man back, and if you don't, you're out. So, once again, as is the theme with this pope, the bishops did not take this well. I'm surprised Africa hasn't, like, come up and shanked him. Well, this is the start of their very rocky relationship with the rest of the church, and we're not that far away from it. So, I I have a feeling he did a lot to exacerbate that situation. And, like, let's be clear here, Africa had a very, very organized appeal process as laid out in the administration of the church. And all of that that they've set up is being ignored entirely and bypassed to a man who seems to kind of believe whoever he spoke to last the most. So you want to be the last person to talk to Zosimus because then he's going to believe you and take your side. And then it gets worse. (laughs) No, even worse. In a horrible deja vu moment, Zosimus justified his decisions by citing the canons from the Nicene Council. The fake ones? (laughs) Well, (laughs) the canon he quoted was the one that stated, quote, When a bishop thinks he has been unjustly deposed by his colleagues, he may appeal to Rome, and the Roman bishop shall have the business decided by Judas's in partibus. I mean, that canon would justify his action. Except that this canon was not from the Council of Nicaea. (laughs) This was from the Council of Sardica, a council that happened under Pope Julius I that we discussed in episode 37. This is one of those councils that was held during the Athanasius kerfuffle. Yeah, and the Athanasius interlude. This is where, like, the Arians had refused to attend the council called by the popes and set up rival councils to pass competing judgments. So this is one of the councils where the canons didn't ever really stick. It's definitely not from the Council of Nicaea. So, Sosimus is calling it from the Council of Nicaea, and the African bishops are looking at their copies of the Nicene canons, and they're not seeing this ruling. So they go to the archbishops of Constantinople, Alexandria, and Antioch, and they say, can can we have a look at your copy of the canons of Nicaea? Can we just check that for a second? Uh, We just want to make sure there's no error on ours. But it's not there either. So four different cities do not have this canon from the Council of Nicaea. 
So Zosimus looks like an absolute idiot. A dum-dum. Yeah. So dumb. This man, ha- this is twice now that he's gone, Council of Nicaea, and been wrong. So there is a theoretical explanation for this blunder. You keep saying that, but I don't think you know what it means. Exactly. The Roman manuscripts of the Council Canons of Nicaea were written on a document that also showed the Canons of Sardica underneath. Mm, it was like a omnibus. Yeah, and, and there's some theory that maybe there wasn't a title indication that the following canons were from a different council, but this feels like a very, very feeble excuse when we're talking about the canons of Nicaea, that he's already fudged once already in his papacy. So this is not good. So, clearly, if the Pope can't keep his own canons straight, there is absolutely no reason for the bishops of Africa to be persuaded to capitulate on the grounds of papal supremacy. So this agreement over Apiarius and the intervention of Rome goes on and on. And again, we're not going to see a solution under Zosimus before he dies. So ongoing problem number two. I mean, number three, if you count Pelagianism, which is still going to be a problem, but There are some indications that as this disagreement progressed, though, that the bishops of Africa were planning to appeal this problem to the imperial court at Ravenna and have the emperor step in. So they were just really tired of the pope flashing around rules that weren't there and threatening excommunication. They're like, let's just get the emperor to settle this. And when Zosimus heard about this, he threatened to excommunicate the African bishops and the people of Ravenna for plotting against him. So there's that. All right. So it was probably a great relief to the whole church when Zosimus died on December 26th of 418, after what was described as a long illness. At least, it was probably a relief in one way. In another way, it was a disaster. Because of all this instability that he created, Zosimus didn't leave his clergy in good order when he died. Dissension was heavy, and the divides are large, so this does not leave a smooth road for his successor, or successors. Hint, hint. He was buried in the Basilica of St. Lawrence outside the walls, although some sources I read said that within the Basilica, he was buried in an unknown grave. So this would suggest that maybe, although they know he was buried there, they haven't actually found which grave is his yet. There's a notation that perhaps he's been identified by De Rossi in his 1881 findings, but it wasn't actually in the De Rossi source catalogs that I had access to. So maybe, maybe not. But he's somewhere underneath that church. And that's Zosimus. All right. That's all we get. Yeah. So um, we're going to rate him. <laughs> this uh, is going to be fun. Papatum infallium. This is a pope that no one speaks highly of. And no one looks at his papacy as a strong one. It is a papacy that had a powerful impact on the papacy as a whole. It's just bad. really, really bad negative. Bad impact. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he pushed papal primacy way too hard, way too rash, way too uninformed, and this hurts the idea of Rome as the primal authority of the church. This is papacy is going to be huge when we talk about the idea of papal infallibility. So that's going to be a problem. He comes up often as a, an example for the denial of papal infallibility. Because he was forced to backtrack and forced to change his mind, and he cited the wrong councils and the wrong canons, and this made it really difficult for the idea of papal infallibility to move forward. So they're going to have to, the theologians who want to have 
this idea of papal infallibility makes sense, are going to have to do some mental gymnastics to make it work. So this is where we start to see the arguments that Zosimus wasn't speaking ex-cathedra when he made these mistakes. And ex-cathedra is that reference to the full authority of the office when a pope speaks from the throne on moral and theological matters, which makes them infallible. Because papal infallibility doesn't cover everything that a pope says, only faith and doctrine. And he's literally listed as a prime example of, quote, the rock of St. Peter can sometimes be unstable. Not good. The Pelagius flip-flop is a whole other issue. I will not diminish this. The papacy is so turbulent and unstable that it sets up a divided clergy in a very dire situation for his potential successors. So, and he made all these problems that he was not pope long enough to repair. To me... Zosimus gets a big fat zero. Yeah, I mean, if we could if we could give him negatives, this would be a good time, but we can't. Mm -hmm. So zero goose egg. He gets a goose egg in this category, which makes him the first one to do so. I would have given him like a negative six if that was a proper right. Right, it's not good, and he 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 has scored the lowest of the low in this round. Fructus prohibitum. I mean. Vegas friend. Vegas friend. He's super, super gullible. Um, you know, some sources try to maybe make a little bit of excuses for him by saying he had a crazy temper, but to me it seems like a case of the dumb, so. No, he gets a straight 10 from me. You're gonna give him a 10 for scandal? He's so stupid. He is stupid. I... I'm not going to give him a 10, because there are going to be popes who actively do things that are way, way worse than being stupid. But I will honor your 10 and give him a 5. So he gets a 15 in this category. It's not bad. I think it's the only category he's going to score well in, so. Seculari impactum. His papacy is so unstable that the bishops of Africa are prepared to turn to the emperor to intervene in church matters again. Bad. Bad, bad, bad. He threatened to excommunicate all of the people of Ravenna for potentially plotting against him. He didn't really make an official move against the Pelagians until the Emperor did, so these are all bad precedents. Again, there is nothing good here that he's doing for secular people. It's gotta be a zero. Yeah, the impact is all polar. Yeah. In this category, he's definitely not the first to get a zero, but he's not doing well. No, he is not. Fossium Sanctus. All right, is he going to get any points? Um, well, okay, I, I'm going to set you up for this one a little bit. I want you to look at this photo as if he has just been told that the canons he's mentioned are not actually from the Council of Nicaea. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he's got the, the confused, uh, is it Fry who's got the not sure? It's the not sure face. But you mean Fry from Futurama? <laughs> not me, Fry. Futurama Fry. Yeah, kind of that hmm face. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I see, when I look at this, I see, what? Not sure if canon or lying. Yeah, so um, the image itself, like, he, he doesn't have any particularly defining features. He's not particularly remarkable. But when I see this image, I think of that moment... And so he's going to get some points from me because it just cracks me up to think that that's when someone said, that's not from the Council of Nicaea. What are you talking about? 
So I'm going to give him a six. But he couldn't Google it because they didn't have smartphones back then. Ah, that's funny you say that because I have an idea for patron sainthood. You mean it's not going to be a Vegas wedding? I mean, it could be. So what do you want to give him for this photo? Um, I can give him a good four. That's a good expression. It is. The expression makes this photo for sure. So that gives him a 2.5. I've never seen a Pope yet be so squinty and annoyed. Yes. Yes, he looks very annoyed. And in this one that I'm going to send you now, it's a little bit different, but he, you could imagine that this is the same moment. It's just a different expression. Doesn't even look like people anymore. Who drew this? I mean, it's clearly like a, a zhuzhed up version of the one, the artist that never improves. Someone took it and they're like, let's take this to the ninth level. It's almost Picasso obscure. It's very... It's odd. Like, look at the shading on his face. It's so extreme. It's like he's wearing a... He's kind of got a Darth Maul face. Yeah. Someone applied too much contour. So much. This is face paint. This isn't contour anymore. So yeah, it's probably a good thing we're not rating on that one, because I feel like it would be a zero. Tempest Pontificus. March 18th, 417 to December 26th, 418. That's a year and nine months to mess everything up. Also, since I cut it all out, Brie definitely had to say that like four times. For sure. For sure. Just so we could be clear what we actually said there. We round that up to two years, giving him a score of 0.5. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Do, 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 do. Yes, he is a saint. His feast day is December 27th. Now, it should be December 26th, that is a corresponding with his death day, but Dionysius has his feast day on December 26th, so... Patron saint of leftovers. So, Zosimus, the less impressive, gets bumped today. No sharing. Also, he was not given his sainthood right away. He was only given sainthood status in the 9th century, when Edo of Vienne added his name to the martyrology. Why would you do that? This man doesn't deserve it. It's a token sainthood, for sure, in this case. He is not a patron saint of anything, but I am going to propose that maybe he should be the patron saint of quotes on the internet, because those are never accurate. They are never accurate. Well, do you want to make him a patron saint of the Vegas wedding, or of quotes on the internet? That's so any choices and they're both so very good he could be the patron saint of vegas weddings and invoked i want to say invoked against quotes on the internet we can't be invoked against quotes on the internet because that makes my other side hustle completely invalid <laughs> okay so we will make him the patron saint of vegas weddings vegas weddings so he is now the patron saint of Vegas weddings. I just don't want to be invalidated, Brie. Shitpost sampler's doing so well. It's doing so great. I am proud. So we will just say, he is the patron saint of Vegas weddings. So, total score. Is it a seven? <laughs> it is. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's our lowest score, isn't it? No, we have a five. Oh, okay. We have some eights. We have, yeah, we have two fives. His score is mainly all scandal score here. He scores a 19. Oh, he gets to be in the teens club for being so junky. Yeah, I mean, this is... But this is the thing about rating popes. Sometimes it's the crazy bad people who are going to score so well and be worthy of that papal, pizzazzy, lasting impact, 
Papal Bull. So, he's really bad, and we're gonna remember him. I don't wanna. No. No, you're not willing to give Mm -mm. it to him as, like, one of the worst popes we've covered so far? No, he's so bad. It hurts me. He's so bad, but that's why he sticks out in my mind. And then, like, it's one of those pope names you see quite a lot when you're researching anything about papal history. So, before... I knew anything about him. I had kind of assumed that he was going to be one of those Damasus-style popes that you got a lot of information for because they were so long-lasting and they had such an impact. And he does, and it's all bad! And I'm totally willing to go to divine intervention over this. All right, divine intervention. You have so many choices. Should I just pick one? Uh, yes. Pick the one that you think is the ugliest, because that seems appropriate for him. Oh, the ugliest? All right. Because I got, I got giant metal dice now. (laughs) Excellent. Real, they'll probably break my desk, so I won't roll those. Um. No. Ugliest one. Ugliest. While she's picking her dice, I will remind all listeners that 1 to 10 is a trip straight to purgatory, while 11 to 20 is the divine intervention required. And the Papal Bull will be granted. We have not yet rolled a natural 20 or a natural 1. 1, we won't ever talk about you again. And natural 20, you get a first ride ticket to the playoffs. So. I'm not going with the ugliest. I'm going with my itty bitty bronze metal dice. That seems appropriate. I'm good with it. So. He got a eight. He got an eight. Oh, there's no papal bull for you, Zosimus. I'm not sorry, but I really did think you were worth it. So that's that. With that, we can say thank you to Rex Factor and Totalis Rankium for supporting us as always. And on that note, we can say thank you and goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.